0: The Sabbath had only been over for a few hours. It was actually still dark. But Mary Magdalene couldn't wait any longer. She had to go to the tomb of Jesus. She took with her two other women and they took spices and oils to anoint the body of Jesus. They felt like um, his body had been too hastily prepared on the day of of his death on the on the Friday. It's interesting because in other places uh, it says that Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, who asked for the body from Pilate, actually purchased about 75 pounds of anointing and preparation herbs and spices for the body. But you know how this is, particularly husbands, that when you do something your wife asks you to do and then she says, Is that really done? Was that really done right? Uh, Because oftentimes when I clean the house, she goes, That's clean? Uh, Kind of a thing. And so, you know, they they don't trust that these men have properly or taken care of the body of Jesus. But in, in another sense, you have to look at the emotion of this moment and you realize it's not just the task it's the desire to be close to Jesus again. And so these women go and they they're going after dark which shows this special dedication that they have to him. They also have not thought through the details of there's a very huge stone that's blocking the tomb. How are they going to move it? Or the other detail is that the Roman soldiers have been assigned there and these troopers are not going to allow anybody near the body. They haven't thought about that. All they can think of is they want, to, they want to get to the tomb. And when they get there, of course, all those obstacles are removed because the stone is rolled away. The soldiers have fled in terror. And Mary goes into the, into the tomb. Now, you must understand something. She had no expectations whatsoever of a risen Jesus. You do not anoint A risen Jesus, you anoint a dead corpse. So her expectation was to find the same dead Jesus that she had seen placed in the tomb on Friday. And when she saw that there was no body in the tomb, she had awesome, even extravagant kind of love for Jesus, but she had no belief that He was raised from the dead. She began to yell. She began to get panicky. She ran all the way back to where she knew his disciples were waiting. And she went to them and, and in that kind of voice of desperation, she says to them, they have taken his body and they don't know where it is. And scriptures tell us that, that the story now shifts. And Peter and John race from where they are and they, they race to the tomb. Now, one of the beauties of the narrative in John chapter 20 is this. John, as he writes this, is an old man. It's probably some 50 or 60 years after the occurrence of the resurrection. And so John is writing, and here he is. You can kind of see a gleam in his eye. You can kind of see this twinkle in his eye as he writes. And he says, Peter and I were racing to the tomb. Oh, and by the way, I beat him. I got there first. You know, it's a it's a powerful little intimate detail. And then John gets to the tomb and and you have to understand John was raised in a very observant religious family. Dead bodies make you unclean. So he stops at the entrance to the tomb and he doesn't go in. Doesn't want to become unclean. And then Peter finally gets there and he he bulls right through and he goes right in to the tomb he doesn't wait he doesn't think anything about it and at this point john begins to do the same he goes in and john recounts for us that he saw the clothes and he said the way he explains it is it looked like clothes where there once was a body and now there's not a body That they had fallen in folds as if the body itself was, was basically transported out of the clothes. And he tells us they were laying there. They were empty, but they had been filled. And you could tell they had been filled by the way they lay. But then he gives us a beautiful detail. He says that laying beside the clothes was the sweat cloth. The cloth that was placed over the face of Jesus. And he said it was folded up and it was laid aside. Now, history tells us that carpenters would have a sweat cloth. And in the Mediterranean heat, they would all day, they would wipe their foreheads and they would clean their their eyes so they could continue their work. But at the end of the day, They would neatly fold their sweat cloth and they would lay it aside. What John saw was he saw that this was not a ghost who had manifested. This was not a spirit who had folded up a cloth. This was the carpenter's son who said he was also the son of God. And he had such victory over death. He had such calm composure. And he was in no hurry whatsoever so that he went back to his father's training as the carpenter in Nazareth who every day folded up his sweat cloth and set it aside just as John found it in that tomb. Then John says that that when he saw The state of the tomb. It had not been ransacked by grave robbers. When he saw the state of the tomb, when he saw the folded cloth, John said, even though I had not yet seen him, I believed. I believed before I ever saw him. I believed that he was risen from the dead. Peter, however, it says, he left confused. He was still wandering. He was still thinking, is... Is his body stolen? Is he raised? What does this mean? Peter could not, John said, Peter could not connect connect the dots. He couldn't see how this event was the fulfillment of Scripture that pointed to the fact that Jesus had to suffer and enter into death and then be raised on the third day. And so Peter and John went back to be with the other disciples. But Mary lingered. And the story shifts again. And Mary lingers in the tomb. And now something happens that begins to move this story forward. There are two angels that appear. They're they're in the tomb, these two angels. Now, the way the angels deal with Mary can almost seem a little cruel or a little insensitive here. They say, Why are you crying? Now, you and I know why she's crying. She's Mary Magdalene. She was delivered of demons. She's Mary Magdalene. She had a past, and her past had been forgiven by the Holy One of God. She had no identity until she met Him. She had never known love. She had never known forgiveness. She was worth something. She had an identity. And on that Friday... That one who had given her that unconditional love and that forgiveness had been brutally killed. And now on top of that he's missing. His body's not there. She cannot even grieve properly. She cannot mourn her heart's brokenness with him because he's he's been stolen, she believes. Now, think through this with me. Have you ever read a book or see a story or watch something and The only wisdom or the only insight you have is the character's insight. You only know things from the character's perspective. And so you don't know what the author is thinking. You don't know what the end of the story is. And so all you have is what you've been given in terms of clues. And what happens to most of us in in our lives is that's all we have. We only have our perspective. And so when we look at things, we may be grieving and we may be crying because that's all the clues that we have. But right there in the tomb are these two angels who know exactly what has happened. She's grieving as if she has no hope. And they're saying to the woman, why are you crying? The very one you seek is alive and you just don't know it. Are you listening to me? See, sometimes the character, maybe you... Think that your insight is the all knowing, when in fact, these two angels are the all knowing ones in this story. But she will not listen to them, nor will she take clues from them. She just keeps pounding, they've taken his body, they've taken his body. And she hears or feels or senses someone behind her, and she immediately whirls around to look at him. And as she's looking at him, he says the same thing to her Woman, why are you crying? She's thinking these people are just all psychologically not helpful right now. You know They need counseling degrees from AGSC or something. But uh, she, just, she looks at him and says, If you know where he's been taken, tell me and I will go there. Now there is such a powerful detail here. One I want you to get. When Jesus speaks to her and she doesn't recognize him, The first way that he addresses her is so beautiful. And you have to hear the tenderness in this. He says, woman, why are you crying? Well, just a few days earlier on the cross, he addressed his own mother that way. And he said, woman, this disciple of mine, John, is now your son. He will take care of you. Even, you see, in his darkest hour, the King of kings and the Lord of lords was pastoring his people. He had such presence of mind that he made sure that his mother Mary would be taken care of for the rest of her days by the Apostle John. And when he spoke to his mother, he said, woman, and it was a tender moment between son and mother. But it was also a powerful moment between the king and the savior and the Lord of all the earth saying, I will take care of you. I will make sure you're taken care of. And when he speaks to Mary, he speaks in that same tenderness. He says to her, you're not seeing the real picture. You're not understanding that I am the one you're crying over. And it isn't until he speaks her name and he says, Mary. And at that moment, she recognizes him. The scales fall off her eyes. She recognizes him. She cries out to him and she says, "Raboni, my teacher, my teacher and she clings to him and she takes hold of him like she will never let him go she lost him once she doesn't want to lose him again and what many of us don't realize as we're reading this story is Jesus is now in a light mood he's not in a grim determined mood he's not in a he's not in a serious and somber mood matter of fact The wording that he uses is almost playful at this point. Do you know why? Because Jesus has completed his task. Because Jesus has finished his work. He has defeated sin, he has defeated death, and he is the victor in the garden. And he looks at her, and basically, this is what he says Woman, don't cling to me. I haven't left you yet. And then he says to her, I want you to be my missionary. And he sends her as the first one to go and to tell the good news. She races. She races to the disciples and she begins to proclaim that she has seen the risen Lord. But see, she has a deep message. More than just that she's seen Him. He says to her, I am ascending. I am ascending to my Father and to your father, oh wow what what joy must have been on jesus' face what what satisfaction in his voice as he is preparing for his ascension to the right hand of the Father where he will sit and be interceding and praying for all of us. In one way, he says to Mary in this playful way, don't cling to me, I haven't left you yet. But in another way, he's saying to her something so powerful because he's saying, I have to go, and I have to go to my place at the right hand of the Father. And because I go there, this intimacy, this affection, this Worship that you're feeling for me will now be able to to be experienced by every single individual who calls on my name. In the same way that you delight in me, you adore me, and you see me as your Savior and Lord, by my Holy Spirit, I will be able to give that same encounter and experience to every single believer in me. And she goes to the disciples. And when she gets to them, Luke says they all thought she was crazy. And not a single one of them, other than John, who already believed, not a single one of them believed her testimony. As a matter of fact, it took a while. They were debating back and forth, what do these events mean? Where has his body gone? And one day, behind locked doors, Jesus appears, and he actually goes through the walls. And he gets in the room with them, John says, And He begins with a very powerful statement to them. He says to them, Shalom, peace. But He doesn't show them His face. He shows them His scars. Here's my hands. Here's my side. And in that moment, every one of the disciples that are there, they begin to be incredibly changed by this. And Jesus begins to pour out to them What all of this is about. What what he's doing in that room, he says to them. You know now, by the fact that I am alive, that my Father sent me. And in the same way that my Father has sent me, now I'm sending you. With that same authority. With that same mission. And he says to them something so wonderfully powerful that many of us as, as believers, as committed Christians, many of us miss... He says, whoever you forgive will be forgiven. And whoever you don't forgive will not be forgiven. He sends them out to preach the message of forgiveness because He's accomplished our forgiveness through His perfectly sinless life, His substitutionary death on the cross and by His resurrection. He sends them out, but He also says to them, That their forgiveness is a little more organic than that. It's a little more relational than that. It's not merely a concept. It's an experience. And that what Jesus has accomplished in His death and His resurrection is not something just that we read about, but it's something that we actually share with one another. So that when you are willing to confess your sins, when you are willing to get right with God. When you recognize the fact that you're a sinner in need of grace, in need of salvation, the offer is complete. Forgiveness, the end of guilt, the end of shame, Jesus says. And He says to them, I'm sending you out to speak that with confidence. There was one disciple who was not there. And he was so adamant And said, you know what, I don't believe you guys unless I see the nail prints, unless I touch his side. And we have grown to call this guy Doubting Thomas. And one of the great philosophers said, you shouldn't put so much dishonor on Thomas. Because it's in our doubts that we actually come to believe fully and wholly. It's when we wrestle with our doubts. It's those of us who have no doubts. Those of us who never even come to any kind of real surrender are yielding to this truth. We are the ones who are religious but never righteous. We are those who know the truth but never have a relationship. So Thomas was honest and he said, I don't believe until he saw Jesus. And again, Jesus showed him his scars. And he said, touch me. And he said to Thomas twice, you understand, Jesus didn't condemn Thomas his doubts, but he spoke over him and he said, blessed are, peace, peace. And he said, uh, John said that as Thomas saw the Lord, he fell on his knees and he didn't say, I don't believe anymore. He said, my Lord and my God. And the Lord Jesus said this to Thomas, he said, blessed are you, Thomas, because you have seen and you believe, but even more blessed, and even a greater blessing, he says, are for those who believe even though they've not yet seen. You know, John believed before he saw. And it's a pattern. Jesus says, blessed are those, those who believe even before we see. Now, what does all of this mean? Um, Dennis, would you advance the slide for me for a second? There's three things I want to take from this narrative. Instead of reading it today, I just wanted to go through it with you. Look at it together. It's very intimate. It's very personal. In the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the Apostle John, who writes 21 chapters, brings together in culmination these themes that he's been developing the whole of his book. One of those themes that begins in the very introduction of the gospel, is the theme that Jesus is who He says He is, and here are the eyewitnesses who affirm that Jesus is who He says He is. And he begins at the very first chapter, and he says, there was a man who was sent from God, and his name was John. Now this isn't Apostle John, this is John the Baptist. And John talks about The affirmation and the authentication of the the testimony that Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, that Jesus is the long awaited Messiah and Savior. Now, I find that the way that John uses the witnesses makes me incredibly comfortable with the genuineness of the record. That there is something so authentic in the way that John witnesses to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, let me give you the first one. The very first one is this. Nobody in the first century would have used the witnesses of the women. In the first century, a woman was not even allowed to give testimony in a court because her witness would be considered unreliable. You see, if you were starting a religion from scratch, you wouldn't put up witnesses that you couldn't take to court. And yet, here is John, and his first witness, and his most emotive witness, and his most powerful witness is the love and the adoration of Mary Magdalene and the two women with her. Do you understand, not only is John saying, I don't care what the courts say, this is the truth, But he's also saying, look how the kingdom of God looks at men and women. That the witness of a woman before God is is altogether authentic, reliable. He breaks the pattern of male dominance. Right in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Which Paul says, because Christ has made peace between us, There is no more male or female, no Jew or Gentile, no slave or free, but we are one in Christ. There's an awesome lifting up, not tearing down, but a lifting up and saying there's an equality at the cross. But he wouldn't have done that if he was just trying to convince people. The second thing that I find just so personal and so comforting is, John's saying, oh, by the way, you know that guy, Peter, the one that uh, became the bishop of Rome, that became the big fisherman, the great fisherman, the one who later on there'll be movies about and TV shows about and all kind of stuff? I beat him in a race. <laughs> I mean, is that not human? Is that not personal? That you're really just trying to share from the heart. He and Peter became inseparable after the resurrection. They were like big brother and little brother. But here in his old age, he says, but I could still outrun him. Or the cloth. Only someone who really understood that Jesus was the son of a carpenter. Who grew up in his father's workshop. Who was trained every day to fold his Cloth. Only one who knew that would say, look, this is not a ghost. This is not a spirit. This is the carpenter's son who said he's also the son of God. Who when he rose from the dead, he went back to his training. And he folded up the cloth before he left the tomb. These are amazing, intimate details. John says in verse 30, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples that are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and by believing you may have life in his name. See, John is saying, would you advance that for me, Dennis? I lost Dennis. Let me see. He did? Okay. I saw his head back there. So John is saying in this summary of why he wrote his gospel, he's saying something that I'd like you to to capture. He doesn't merely want you to read about Jesus. He wants you to believe in Jesus. That what John experienced was he experienced the death of his dream. On Good Friday, when Jesus died, everything John was invested in, everything that John had believed in, everything that John thought was going to happen, all of that died on a cross. Had to have been the worst day of his life, Saturday, just waiting and saying, what do I do now? And then that one who had experienced death on Sunday morning experienced life. And it wasn't just the life of Jesus he experienced what he called life everlasting. For it is John who says in the 16th verse of chapter 3, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believes in Him should not perish, but have what? Life everlasting. He wrote that knowing the end of the story. John wants you to believe. He doesn't want you just to read. He wants you To experience Jesus in the way that he experienced Jesus. That's the call of the resurrection. Now the second thing that John brings together in this story is that he has been weaving the conflict and explaining the conflict between light and darkness. Between death and life. As a matter of fact, even in the opening chapter of his gospel He he explains so well that the darkness has been trying to overcome the light. That death has been trying to have complete dominion over life. Now, if you don't see this in your life, you're not looking too closely. Have you ever had that experience where you say, I took two steps forward and then three steps back. I seemed like I was getting ahead, but now I'm so behind. That is a a manifestation of the conflict of light and dark, of death and life. And that darkness is trying to overwhelm you because it's trying to overwhelm the light. John weaves this story together. One of the ways to look at it is that there was a painter by the name of Rembrandt. And I love Rembrandt's paintings for the way that the light shines in the painting is as if there's a, there, there's a light inside the painting. If you ever look at it, it just it glows. There's a glow over the figures, over Jesus, over the different figures that he paints. But in order for that light to be so bright in the painting, it is because Rembrandt is a master of shading and darkness. He is so incredibly gifted at putting the shades, making the darkness, so that it's the light shining out of the darkness. And the darkness is not able to extinguish the light. That's what John is saying in chapter 20. He's saying the darkness tried and it looked like the darkness had him. It looked like sin had Him. It looked like death had Him. Do you understand, friends, that if there is no Easter Sunday, then Good Friday is not a Good Friday. If there is no Easter Sunday, then He was just a noble, crazy man trying to do something nice. But if death had Jesus, then sin still has us. And so what John is saying... Is that in the resurrection, though it looked like the darkness had overwhelmed the light, the light overcame the darkness. And the light shines through the darkness. And that's kind of the sublime, beautiful imagery of the resurrection. Now, let me give you a not so sublime imagery. Death is defeated, friends, death is overcome. Now, the reason that death is defeated is because God will not take a second payment for your sin. Our God is just. He will not take a second payment for your sin. The payment that Jesus made for your sin is sufficient. It is enough. And how I illustrate that is that this week on Wednesday... Lisa realized we had not gotten our Easter flowers yet. And she went into a panic. Not quite Mary at the tomb panic, but a, but a bit of a panic. We need Easter flowers. We have to have Easter flowers. And she looked at me and said, you're taking me to Costco. Which for me is purgatory hell something. I, 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 I just don't like going to Costco but we, we got all of our flowers bought. We paid for them. And then you realize at Costco, you better hold on to your receipt. If you don't have your receipt, they don't let you out. Now that I know would be hell. <laughs> Stuck in Costco with no receipt. But do you know what your receipt is? Your receipt is the guarantee that you paid once for all time. It's the guarantee... That you don't have to pay again. So when I get my receipt out, I do it with a big smile on my face to the attendant and say, you can't stop me. (laughs) I paid for this stuff. You can't stop me. You see, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the receipt. And it says, paid in full. And it says to the devil, it says to sin, it says to death, you can't keep me here. I have been paid, it's been paid, the debt is paid. Listen, have you ever thought through this? It's one of the most beautiful things in John's writing. He says, if you confess your sins, that's all he says you have to do, that you have to own up and take responsibility and say, I'm a sinner. You know what the Bible says? All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. You know what the Bible says? There is none righteous, no, not one. Each of us has turned our own way. No one seeks after God, the Bible says. And so John says, if you get the realization that you're a sinner and you go before God and you say, Lord, I confess, I confess. Do you know what it says after that? It says he is faithful and just to forgive your sins and to cleanse you of all unrighteousness. But why in the world does it say he is faithful and just? I would think it would say he's faithful and merciful. Or he is faithful and gracious. Or he is faithful and loving. But it says he is faithful and just. Yes, the forgiveness of God is based on his goodness, his grace, his mercy, and his love. That's true. But John says there's a deeper truth. And the truth is this. Our Father has accepted the payment of Jesus for your sin. He will never ask for a second payment. That means he has now tied your forgiveness to his justice. So when you come to him, and you are honest, and you are broken, he will never turn you away. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you shall be saved. Now, that's what John wanted you to know. Now, the the last thing that I want to... Are you tracking with me this morning? Three of you. Okay, I'll keep going. (laughs) So he's saying to you, I want something for you that is not religious. I want something for you that's not about morality. I want you, he says, to believe Jesus is your Messiah, the Son of God, and then that by believing, you may have life in his name. Think about how intimate these details are, because what John wants is you to have intimacy With God. With the same Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. The intimacy that Jesus the Son shared. He wants you to share that same intimacy. Look at how deeply John reveals the vulnerability and the fragility of Mary Magdalene. How she goes and and she's weeping because the body's been stolen. And Jesus has been listening the whole time. And he calls her so tenderly and he says, Woman. Woman. And then when she still doesn't recognize him, she, he says her name like no one else can say it. He says, Mary. How many of you had that kind of relationship with your mother? I did. My mother had a way of saying my name that nobody else can say it. When she was happy with me, I was Mike. When she was getting mad, I was Michael. Michael. And when she was furious, and I better come home because I'm going to tell your father, she called me, Michael Wayne Cluckett. (laughs) And no matter what I was doing, I stopped and I went home and I did whatever she wanted to do because there was nobody who could say my name like my mother. Well, this is a picture of how we come into a saving relationship with God through Christ. He calls you by name. You see... He's the good shepherd. He knows you as his sheep. And he says, my sheep hear my voice and they follow me. I call them, he says, by name. You understand, it's not just believing a set of propositions. It's not just saying I have a certain morality. All of those things I I hope you have morality. I hope that you have truths that you believe in. But eternally and for life after death, those things are no good for you. The only thing that gives you life everlasting is to connect your life, to unite your life, your faith, your trust, your heart To the risen Lord Jesus Christ. If you have Him, you have the life. If you don't have Him, you don't have the life. And if you've never heard Him call your name, you're just religious and you're not really His. He speaks your name. Just like He spoke Mary's name. Not only that, but He tells us in this narrative, He shows us how forgiveness is accomplished. Because you might say to me, I've heard him call my name, but I'm not worthy. Or I'm not good enough for his love or whatever it might be. Well, when Jesus appeared to his disciples and when he proclaimed peace and he showed them his scars, what he was pointing to was something they were very familiar with. In the Old Testament, once a year, the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies and he would make sacrifice a spotless, blameless, without blemish lamb would be sacrificed, blood sacrifice for the sins of the people. And as he concluded that atoning work, he would come out and, and he would raise his hands, over the people, and he would speak the benediction, he would speak the blessing, he would speak the peace. Over the people for one year. Here is Jesus. He's gone into death. He has overcome and taken upon Himself the sins of the world. You see, He wasn't just dead for two hours or three hours. He went deep into the dominion of sin. He went deep into the dominion of death and no record of sin could be found in Him. No warrant against Him. No judgment could be found. And so death could not hold Him. And when he came forth and he came, and just like the high priest on Yom Kippur, and he shows the scars and he proclaims over the people, peace. It isn't sins forgiven for one year. It is the Lamb who was pointed to on the Day of Atonement. It's the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And when He demonstrates His scars, He's showing He's the Lamb. And when He speaks peace, He's showing He's the Priest. And He says to those of us who believe this, now I'm sending you. I'm sending you. To take the peace. I'm sending you. To preach forgiveness. You know what he's saying in this? He's saying there's real guilt. He's saying there's real shame. But he's also saying. There's a real remedy. Right, I'm going to close up. With this aspect. You and I. If, if we're honest. We live in. A, an age of contradictions. And at the basis of. Of all of the contradictions of people's life at the at the root is really fear there's a there's an abiding fear in every human heart and the two things that we fear the most at the root of all your fears is that fear of being powerless of not having control of not being able in some ways to control your own destiny or control your own actions that fear of being powerless And the second one is the fear of being disconnected, of having no worth or value, having no one who loves you, no one who cares about your well-being, being being disconnected and, and no one caring. Well, what is death, friends, except utter powerlessness? What is death but the ultimate disconnection? So really what the Scripture is teaching is that at the root of all your fears is the fear of death. And so we live in this time where there's a a loud voice that's saying, you're nothing but an accident. You're a, a random gathering of molecules. That this is all that there is. This is ultimate. And yet at the same time, I mean, listen to the contradiction. At the same time, you're told, tell your children they're princes and princesses. I mean... Am I an accident or am I a princess? Uh, Is this all there is? Because I see all the time people saying, I need meaning. I need purpose. I need something that's worth living for. See, the resurrection of Jesus Christ not only deals with your deepest fears, friends, but it says that this isn't all that there is. It says there is one who has gone into death and who has returned. And when He returned, He was light as a feather and He was full of satisfaction and fulfillment. And He spoke to His disciples and He says, I'm ascending to My Father and to your Father. And He says, I'm going to My eternal home and I'm preparing a place there for it to be your eternal home. All He asks is that you would believe Him. Now, what made all the difference in the disciples' experience in John 20 is that though they had been confused and though they had not put all the pieces together, it said that Jesus breathed on them. And He said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. Now, that Holy Spirit that He was breathing into them was the very Spirit that had anointed Him for His ministry. It was the very Spirit that had come upon Mary in, 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 in the virgin birth. It is that very Spirit who had given Him power in the wilderness to resist and overcome the temptation of the devil. It was that very Spirit that made Him who knew no sin to become sin. For us so that we might become the righteous of God. It's that very spirit that raised Jesus from the dead. That spirit that proceeds from Him at the right hand of God. Far above all rule and authority and power. And that's the spirit He breathes in His disciples. Only one of you said amen to that? Am I sweating for nothing up here? (laughs) Would you let Him breathe on you today? Would you let Him breathe afresh? I do not believe there's this one-time experience with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is a person He likes to have every day, every moment experiences with you. Let Him baptize your life. Let Him baptize your love. Let Him baptize your appetites, your direction, your purpose, your meaning, because this is not all it is. You are not a random set of molecules. You're not an accident. You're God's poem. You're God's artistry. And He wants you now to be a new creation in Christ Jesus. Will you stand with me? Can you hear me today? Would you close your eyes with me and just. Do you let the Spirit of God move in your life and in your heart right now? I mean, I can't imagine going through life believing I'm nothing more than an accident. And then taking that seriously and realizing I, I really have no meaning. I have no purpose. And then to go from that death to began to realize, wait a minute. The apostle John said he wrote this so I could believe. He wrote this so that I could encounter Jesus in the same way Mary did. That I could encounter Jesus in the same way John himself did. John said, "I've written this not just so you'll have a belief, but I've written this so you'll encounter the living Christ." And that by His Spirit, you'll have a sense all day, every day, that you're never alone. And this Sunday makes us all realize we're all going to face death. But the promise of Jesus is, I'm the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. Jesus has so united His life with our life that as long as He exists, we will exist. So I invite you, a way to express faith, a way to express a belief is to pray. And we're all going to pray this together so that none of you have to pray it alone, but it is significant that you make your faith declared to the Lord. Jesus said, if you confess with your lips and believe in your heart, you will be saved. This salvation becomes yours. So I'm just going to lead you in a prayer. I'm going to invite you to pray it out loud with me. Dear Lord Jesus, Jesus, I confess confess that I am a sinner. that sinner. that That I am not righteous. But I give my sins to you. I receive your forgiveness, and let that sink in, man. Just let. This is an exchange. You're being honest. I'm a sinner, and He's being just, taking those sins, having paid for them on the cross. You have the right to receive forgiveness. That's his. That's his justice. That's his fairness. But I'd like you to take it a step farther because it says you need to confess that He is who He says He is. But it needs to be to you and for an encounter with Him. So I I ask you to do this with me. I profess profess that you are risen from the dead, that you you died for my sins, that sins, that that you are the Son of God, and you are my Savior. I choose you you. as my Lord, as as the leader of my life, life. and I receive receive your Holy Spirit. Spirit. Fill me, Holy Spirit. Spirit. Baptize me, Holy Spirit, Spirit. in the love of God God. and in the power of God. God. For For Jesus' sake, amen. Just would you keep your eyes closed for a minute? I just feel the sweetness of the Holy Spirit. Some, this may be new to some of you because you're already thinking about Easter lunch. Let me tell you, the calories will wait. But He loves it when you linger with Him, He loves it when you tarry. There are some of you right now, if you're willing, He's going to release new faith in you, new power. Because you asked. You said, I receive your forgiveness. I receive your spirit. I receive your power. I hear the Lord, and this may seem strange to some of you, but He is walking among us right now. And He's whispering your name, if you'll listen. And He's going to teach you to hear His voice. My sheep hear my voice, and they follow me. Lord, seal what you're doing now. In Jesus' name. Amen. He is risen. Amen. Thank you for being here this Easter Sunday. You all look so pretty. Please give each other a lot of love as you go today.